0: We continue our series in the book of the Psalms, Psalm chapter 30. And if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, please join me in turning there. And as you're turning there, uh, I'm going to voice a brief word of prayer. God, help me to be attuned to your Spirit today. Holy Spirit, show us what we need to see. Teach us what we need to know and empower us in the areas where we need to be empowered so that we might grow in our awareness of God's presence and in our commitment to follow Him faithfully. God, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 30. As you're making your way there, I, I want to call this psalm a song of revival. A song of revival. We just sang about dancing. Some of you may not like dancing too much, but it's biblical. And it's in Psalm 30, so we're just going to have to get over it and maybe let our shimmy and shake a little bit because it's in the Bible. As you are making your way to Psalm 30, I want to show you a connective thread, a thematic thread that, that runs through the Psalter, through the Psalms in this section that really goes all the way back to Psalm 23. And the theme or the thread is the theme of the Lord's presence. It is thick over these Psalms. Psalm 23 famous psalm. Do you remember what David declares? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's, he's craving the Lord's presence. Psalm 24.3, he says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He wants to be where God is. Psalm 25.15, David says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Psalm 26.8, David says, "O oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 27, 4, David says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. What is it that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life? Psalm 28, 2, David cries out, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I lift up my hands, where? Toward your most holy sanctuary and last week psalm 29 9 we saw the lord's powerful voice of judgment led to this surprising result that that david and all the people of god indeed everything in the temple cried out glory there is this immense weighty desire to know the glorious presence of god that has been pulsating through the psalms that we've been studying this summer and when we come to psalm 30 The text seems to have little mention of the the presence of God other than a reference in verse 7 to God's face. And yet, there's a superscription or a title that is given to this psalm. It's it's not just a psalm of David. There's a Holy Spirit-inspired title that is given to the psalm. Do you see that there? It says a psalm of David, and then there's something after that before we get to verse 1. A song at the dedication of the temple, which is interestingly where where God made his presence known among his people. And so David is telling us, the Holy Spirit is telling us that there's something in this psalm that connects with the psalms before about knowing and enjoying God's presence. Now the word literally in that title is house, not temple. And so some scholars have suggested maybe this is about the dedication of David's personal house, which was a time of celebration. But I believe it is more accurately or more probably the dedication of the temple that is in view. And the reason I think that is because though David died before the temple was constructed, he very much so had a desire to build a house for the Lord. God tells him, you're not going to build the house for me. It's going to be your son Solomon who will do it, 2 Samuel seven thirteen. And so David gets to work assembling all the materials that would go into the construction of the temple and apparently writes a psalm as well to be used for the first time in the dedication of the temple of the Lord. So as we read this psalm this morning, we need to keep in mind that this connective tissue between the Lord delivering His anointed King from death, which we'll see in this psalm, and the dedication of a place where all the saints can enjoy God's presence. I'm just going to give away the punchline before we even get there. Can you think of another king other than David who might have come in the line of David, who was delivered from death and built a temple after he was raised up? Can you think of a king that might fit that bill? I can. His name is Jesus, and he is the temple of God, right? In him, all the fullness of God dwells, and then he sends out his spirit to build his church. Let's, Let's read Psalm 30 together. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints. And give thanks to His holy name, his, for His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Verse 6, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. There's the dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Why? That my glory may sing Your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to You forever. This is a song of revival. It's a song of a man who had been defeated and discouraged. And he describes himself as just about dead. But by the end of the psalm, he is rejoicing in the presence of God. And I submit to you in a room this size that I would suspect most of you have been there at some season in your life. Knowledgeable of the things of God, but de- defeated on the inside. Feeling like you are approaching death without the presence of God and, and maybe this song needs to be your song today. I want to show you four things from this psalm. The first is this. The, the deliverance of the Lord's anointed king must lead us to praise. David begins by celebrating a deliverance that has already happened. And then in verse 6, he'll reflect on his defeated condition that brought him to this place. But in verses 1-4, through four, he's praising God for God's deliverance of his life. He says, I will extol you, O Lord. The word extol means to lift up. Notice the reason that he extols the Lord. He lifts up the Lord because the Lord drew him up out of, as we'll see in a moment, near death. The word to draw up is is a word that is used of bringing water up out of a well. David was in deep trouble, and the Lord lifted him up. Did you know you have the same testimony this morning if you know Christ? You have the exact same assurance, the exact same story. You were headed for death. You were a child of destruction because you were under the wrath of God. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. But Christ came and bore the death and the sin that was due us. And through His resurrection, He raises us up by faith to a whole new way of seeing and living so church we lift up the Lord because the Lord is the one who lifts us up we have reason to praise and to magnify the greatness of God because he has drawn us up out of death but being drawn up out of death is not the only reason David gives for his praise he also praises the Lord do you see it in verse 1 that he did not let his foes rejoice over him now David might sound a bit narcissistic with that comment, but his focus is not on himself. His point that he's making is about his enemies. His enemies were not ambivalent. These enemies came to seek not just a victory, but an opportunity to gloat. This is like a Virginia Tech UVA football game. They they play for keeps, and they're going to let you, if if UVA beats Virginia Tech, I'm going to hear about it, and I can identify for you some of the fans I'm going to hear about it from. And guess what? If the reverse is true, they're going to hear about it from me. They wanted to gloat. And in this case, they wanted to to win and do an obnoxious victory dance over David because they knew that David was the Lord's anointed. And if they can conquer the Lord's anointed, then it looks like they've conquered the Lord. So David rejoices and extols the Lord for silencing his enemies. God, thank you for shutting them up for a while It appeared they would triumph. But the Lord lifted David up from an otherwise certain death. And he silenced his enemies. And in verses 2 and 3, David clarifies the severity of his condition. It was like he had one foot in the grave. Whether David felt like dying or is physically at the point of death, God healed him. Do you see it in verse 2? When he cried out for help. Specifically, the Lord brought his, his soul, his life up from Sheol, which is the place of the dead, keeping him alive or perhaps even restoring his life rather than leaving him to go with the wicked to the pit. If you if you think this sounds a lot like a, a death and a resurrection of the Lord's anointed king, you're not mistaken. That's what's pictured in Psalm 30. When David is delivered from near death, he praises the Lord. And in verse 4, he welcomes all the saints, all the Faithful ones. The word is not holy ones here, but faithful ones. All the people who have been adopted by God through His covenant faithfulness want to emulate the faithfulness of God in the way that they walk before God. And David summons them to praise God for His deliverance. The deliverance of David leading to the construction of a temple by Solomon is a picture of a greater rescue that happens when Jesus comes to die and be raised up as the temple, pouring out His Holy Spirit to build His church in the world until Christ returns. And what then is our response for the deliverance of our King that leads to our deliverance so that we can behold the face of God? How do we respond? I respond our response is verse 4. We sing and we praise, thank Or confess His holy name. Literally, the remembrance of His holiness. We give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. We serve a God who is the only uncreated being in the universe. We sinned against Him. We deserve to die. And He made a way to rescue us from the pit through Christ. And we give Him thanks and praise. That is our response. The victory of the king leads the people to become witnesses to the awesome holiness of the God who saves. But there's more to this rejoicing in the Lord that I think we can glean from this psalm. The second thing I want you to see is to delight in the Lord, we need a proper perspective on our present suffering. We need a proper perspective on our present suffering. In verse 5, David says, His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. In verse 5, David is drawing a distinction between divine displeasure, which is momentary and passing for the children of God, and divine favor, which is enduring and forever for the children of God. You see, in the lives of those who love the Lord, who know the Lord, who trust the Lord, facing His anger or seasons of displeasure, feeling that His presence is removed from us, going through seasons of adversity are ultimately for our eternal good. It doesn't feel like that in the moment, right? God, where are you? What's, what's going on in my life? But these challenges that we face drive us back to desperation for God Himself and into a deeper dependence upon the Lord. This is the message of Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. Listen to this. For the Lord reproves Him whom He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. The Lord disciplines. He chastens the sons and the daughters that He loves. So here's the reality, church. If you can sin and it doesn't matter in your life, in your mind, in your heart, in your walk, in the week, that's a problem. If you can just go on sinning and never sense that anything is interrupted or disrupted in your soul or in your life, that's a bad thing. But if you can go and say something you shouldn't have said or had an attitude you shouldn't have had, and no sooner you get out of the restaurant the Holy Spirit is jumping you like crazy, that's a good sign. And the reality is sometimes we, we get the big head jumping ahead of myself and we're like, ah, I'm just going to push aside the conviction of the Holy Spirit today. And over time we develop a bit of a callous on our heart. And then we go through a season of not sensing the joy of the Holy Spirit, and God will let us walk in that until we realize that is deadness, and what we need is confession and repentance and the life of God coursing through our veins. And if you know Christ, if you've truly trusted in Him, and He's forgiven you, and you're a child of God by faith, the reality is, as David says in verse 5, Yahweh's final word is never suffering, but deliverance for those who have been saved. His chastening is for our good. He chastens us so that we might again chase after him. My son had his first ever race yesterday and I, I couldn't have been more proud of my boy. Um, I think he knows how much I love him but in the three weeks prior to the, his first race he might have doubted it a few times. Because I was pushing him. I was pushing his pain threshold. I was pushing his lung capacity. I was pushing him to levels of speed and soreness in the weeks before the race. And there were times that he wasn't very happy with me. But on Saturday, when he ran a minute and 45 seconds faster than he ever had before, the smile on his face... I'll never forget it. Suffering and a sense of alienation from the Lord. Some of you might be there today. They, they might come into your life like an unwelcome guest at night. But if you are in Christ, He will see to it that they need to leave when morning comes and that there is morning that will come. Sometimes morning can't come fast enough. Y'all ever been in a season that season? It lasted a lot longer than you wanted to. But one day, somehow, by God's grace, the Spirit's going to use somebody. He's going to use His Word. He's going to use a sermon. He's going to use a song. He's going to break through, and morning will come. In Christ, tears of suffering will give way to rejoicing. Some glad morning, when Christ returns, all will be made new. The burdens that you face today are often huge in your life, but when you compare them to the eternal weight of weight of glory that is on the way, they are small and temporary. What does Paul say? We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us what? An eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison. Maybe today is the day for some to say, God, I'm tired of pretending like I've got joy that I don't have, and to run back to the face of your Savior and say, Spirit of God, break me. Do whatever you have to do to make me and shape me and give me the presence of God in my life. Thirdly, we see in Psalm chapter 30, verses 6 through 10, that to delight in the Lord, we need a proper perspective on our present blessings. We don't just need a proper perspective on our present suffering. We need a proper perspective on our present blessings. Beginning in verse 6, David, it's like a flashback in the middle of the psalm. He starts with rejoicing, and then in verse 6, he begins to tell you what he's rejoicing for because life hasn't always been so grand. And here's what he says. He looks back on how he ended up in a near-death situation, and he says in verse 6, I'm going to translate it or paraphrase it, I got the big head. It became all about me and my kingdom. In his prosperity, do you see that in verse 6? In my prosperity, when things were going well, I said, I shall never be moved. He didn't say, the Lord won't allow me to be moved. He didn't say, God will never be moved. He said, in my prosperity, I'll never be moved. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. You see, in the Bible, the presence of prosperity and presumption on the part of God's people often go hand in hand. Moses warned the Israelites about this in Deuteronomy 8. He said, now when you get there, do you remember this? Moses talking to the Israelites, he says, you're going to get to the promised land. And when you get to the promised land, and there's milk and honey and wealth and paneled houses and all this great stuff. What did Moses say in Deuteronomy 8? Just don't forget Just don't forget the Lord. What'd they do? They forgot the Lord. And and we do the same thing, right? We get in a jam, we start praying and reading the Bible. Jam passes, we get slack. We interpret good times as a credit to ourselves rather than as a credit to our good Father, and it shows up in our lives in all sorts of ways. It shows up in prayerlessness, prayerlessness, it shows up in unforgiveness, it shows up in stinginess, it shows up in withdrawal from church and other Christians. These are warning lights on the dashboard that we are running the race in our own power rather than independence upon our good Father. Jeremiah twenty two twenty one. 21, the Lord rebu- rebukes Jehoiakim, king of Judah, By saying, I spoke to you in your prosperity. I was trying to get through to you, Jehoiakim, in your prosperity when things were going well. But but you said, I will not listen. Sometimes God removes your prosperity and He removes your awareness of His presence to get your attention. Perhaps someone's here today and God's trying to get your attention. The danger of prosperity is that It can lead us to lose desperation for God and an awareness of our absolute dependence upon Him. That's what David says in verse 7. Though he did not appreciate it at the time, it was the Lord's gracious favor that allowed him to rise and overcome his enemies. His success was not from himself, but from God. But David at the time didn't see his pride, so the Lord got his attention. Longman says this, God did not let such a brazen claim to independence go unchecked. And then he writes this. I love this. If you don't get anything else, listen to this. He redemptively abandoned the psalmist. Think about that. He redemptively abandoned the psalmist. He removed his face. He hid his face. Verse 7 from David. Why? Not so that David would never see his face again, but so that David would finally seek his face. Don't miss that. The Lord turned his face from David so that David could be healed. David thought he was living the dream, but the dream without the presence of God just leads to death. There are people in this room, there are people watching in the gym and on the live stream who understand this. Perhaps you're experiencing it now. Everything on the outside says, I've got the world by the tail. My life is great, but you're dying on the inside. You've gotten to a place of comfort and success, and when you got there, or maybe you're there right now, you're quite proud of yourself. But as you got to the mountaintop, and you looked around at all the success, it still left you empty. And you were empty because God was graciously calling you to something far greater than any mountaintop experience this world could offer. He was calling you to the presence of God. The Lord turns His face at times, so we will turn to Him and live in His presence. God sometimes hides so that you can be healed. In David's life, the absence of the Lord's face led him to dismay. It led him to be greatly troubled of soul, so he cried out to the Lord in verse 8. Just, just begging God is all it means. The The translation we read supplied that he cried out for mercy. That's, that's not actually in the text. He was just crying out to God. Have you ever been so at the end of yourself, you don't even know what to ask God for? That's what verse 8 is. I was just crying out to God. I don't even know what to say to you, God, but you do. The Holy Spirit does. He intercedes for me when I'm dead in my trespasses, when I'm out the door, out to lunch on God, so God help me. Some of you might be there today. Verse 8's a good place to start. Just start crying out to God. I don't know what to say, God. Tell God you don't know what to say. And then verse 9, he, he starts an argument with God. He gets an idea. You ever done that? You start to pray, you don't know what to pray, and then something hits you. Well, I'll pray this. That's kind of what's going on in verse 9. What profit is there in my death, Lord? Now let me just submit to you, this is a good place to start when you're praying to God. Like, beginning with what God, the the glory of God and the benefit to God when you pray is not a bad place to start. God, what are you going to get out of me dying? You're just going to lose a worshiper? The dust isn't going to cry out to you? So how about you just let me live? Wouldn't that be awesome? Now we understand David's arguing from sort of a temporary vantage point, and by the end of the psalm, he's going to talk about praising God forever, so he's not saying that when he dies, there's no resurrection and all the rest, but he's like, right now, I'm going to sing your praise. You deliver me. Show me your face. Show me your presence. I want to worship you. And then in verse 10, he abandons his argument. He's like, life and death is in the hands of the Lord. That's not for me to determine. God knows all, and So he just abandons his argument altogether and he's like, God, just stoop to me in grace and mercy. Just just come down, surround me with your help and your presence and protection. Do something, God. God has got David right where he wants him. He started in presumptive prosperity. And by verse 10, he's begging God just to show up in his life. That's it. God, if you'll just show up in my life, if you'll just do something in me, I will be satisfied. Is that your prayer today? God, show up in my church. Show up in my Sunday school class. Show up in my life. Show up in my marriage. Show up in my children. Get get me beyond me so that I can focus on you. In his, by his seeming absence, the seeming absence of the Lord, the Lord teaches David to surrender his self-importance and his self-reliance and to just rest in God. He teaches David that what he needs more than prosperity is God's presence. How fitting. That at the dedication of the temple, David would remind us, though he was dead with this psalm, that it is not the physical building or our physical strength or our personal status or our career success that captivates our heart and satisfies us. It is only in beholding the glorious presence of God that we find life and presence and protection and joy. David's arrogance has been corrected. The Lord hears his prayer and he heals him. David shows us that God is calling us to a renewed relationship of complete dependence upon the Lord. It is a song of revival. David was as good as dead. He was in utter dismay. Verse 7, without the Lord's presence, but God broke his pride and renewed his spirit. And I've got some good news for you this morning, church. God is still doing the same thing. What he did in David's life, he will do in your life. Jesus never lived one moment in pride and self-reliance. He lived in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of His Father, which led Him all the way to the cross where He died. He bore your sin so that your prideful self-reliance could be crucified in you and that when you trust in the risen Lord, the Holy Spirit would change you from the inside out and open up a door to know the life-giving presence of God. He's still doing it today. And when God does that in you, I I want you to know something, church, as we close this morning in verses 11 and 12. When God does that in your life for the first time or maybe for the 500th time this morning, because maybe, like your pastor sometimes is, maybe you've been a bit of a knucklehead. And maybe you didn't turn around and tell that waitress what you should have said and you need to go back and repent to her and confess to the Lord. Maybe there's something going on at work that you're not being Christ-like in. Maybe there's an attitude that is in your home as you're parenting your children that would lead them to think that there's something in the world greater than God. They think, well, my mom and dad are actually all about automobiles or all about money or all about vacations. What do your children think your marriage and your life is about? What do they ultimately think your life is about? Would they say it's about knowing and enjoying the presence of Jesus and leading others to His glorious face? And here's why I'm asking. Because when God takes somebody who was just about dead and makes them alive, it leads to joy filled worship. It doesn't lead to ambivalence, it leads to worship. Look at verses 11 and 12. God saved me. We start out with praise 6 through 10. This is why I was about to die. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see David's response to being healed by the Lord. In verse 11, David highlights the difference that comes from the Lord's deliverance. He had a life that was characterized by mourning, which is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow, often accompanied by weeping. The transformation that the Lord wants to work in us is comprehensive, it is total. He went from mourning to dancing, not from mourning to the easy chair. You understand what I'm saying? I, I think people think that, we've reduced the transformation that Jesus makes into life. He doesn't take us from death to neutrality. He takes us from death to life. I drive a straight shift. By the way, you should all drive straight shifts. They're awesome. More power, more control. Rand, I love you. Um, Jesus takes a life from reverse to fifth gear. He doesn't take it from reverse to neutral, to just sit there the rest of your life. He takes you from mourning to dancing, from death to life, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, from sorrow to celebration. Some of you this morning are are content with neutral. God doesn't want you in neutral. He wants your passionate, joy-filled pursuit of Him. Some of you have never shimmied or shaken in service. You're going to be shaking your hips next week. God's going to do something. David was so distraught that he depicts himself as wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth is signifying of, of grief and even of death. We saw the sackcloth of Mordecai when we studied the book of Esther. His life was characterized by a depressed and desperate defeat, but the Lord delivered him and clothed him with gladness and glee. And David knows why God did these great things in his life. Do you see the word that in verse 12? We're almost home, I promise. I know it's warm and you're hungry, but hang with me. Look at verse 12. God did this in David's life. Death to life, mourning to dancing, so that he would praise the Lord. The purpose of God's powerful change in David's life and in your life is so that you would praise the Lord. That is the goal of revival. I've heard a lot of people say, Pastor, we just need to pray for revival. We just need to see revival. I long for revival. Do we long for revival? Do we even know what the goal of a revived heart is? It is that we would give genuine, humble, and joy-filled worship to God. A worship that causes us to sing out of our soul, out of our heart described as glory here in verse 12 that we would give him all that we are all that we long to be that we would live to praise his name to give him thanks and praise you see it in verse 12 forever this is not private worship on a private island it is that the whole people of god would be summoned to love and thank and worship god forever and it's all possible because of jesus who when He came and died on the cross for sins, though He had been wrapped in burial cloths on the day of His crucifixion, on the third day, do you remember the Apostle John running to the tomb? And he saw the burial clothes of Christ laying there in the tomb, and he saw the face cloth which strangely had been folded as though someone was alive to leave it there, but there was no body in the tomb. And the Bible tells us in that moment that John believed, he understood that through the anointed, appointed King Jesus, that the world was beginning to be made new. That life everlasting was possible and it was going to be possible to know the presence of God through Jesus Christ who took our place on the cross and was raised on the third day so that we can know Him in glory if you don't know Christ, today's the day to trust Him. If you've been running from Christ, or walking in your own power, your own prosperity, your own arrogance, and your heart is devoid of the face and the presence of God, and your prayer, like David in verse 8, is, God, I don't even know what to pray, but I need to know You today. Then don't hesitate to come. Lay your life down at this altar and begin that process and i promise you on the authority of god's word it's on the way that your mourning will turn into dancing that your sorrow can only stay the night and then in christ mourning will surely come let's pray together god in heaven thank you for your word I want to pray for those online in this room and over and overflow, God, who maybe they're walking in prosperity and they're walking through the motions of the Christian life devoid of knowing Your presence. God, I pray today that You would break through, that Your face would no longer be hidden, and that my brothers and sisters who need to be healed would be healed. And God, those who have never trusted You, have never received the message of the Gospel, That your story has not yet become their story. God, that today they would go from death to life. That they would truly be rescued from sin and delivered into your praise for life everlasting. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.